Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone, where our guest this hour is veteran singer-songwriter and Americana music pioneer, Steve Forbert. This Mississippi native is considered one of America's most perceptive songwriters. With over 20 albums to his name and a new one on the way next month titled Moving Through America, Forbert is still going strong, maintaining a songwriting legacy like none other. From his 1978 debut album through today, Amy Wright chats with Forbert about his storied career and his creative process, highlighting key moments in his musical journey and his life in general. Whispering Bob Harris of BBC Radio 2 said Forbert has one of the most distinctive voices anywhere, and we agree wholeheartedly. All superlatives aside, we're thrilled to have him on the show and for you to be here too. This is Insights from Diddy TV. So where, where are you now, Steve? Are you, are you in New Jersey? Yeah, As, New Jersey? Asbury Park. This, Asbury this is Park. the studio we recorded the last two records in. I actually was in Asbury Park a few years ago, and uh, um, what's the name of the club that, uh, that's there? There's a, cl- there's a famous club in Asbury Park too, right? Oh yeah, the Stone Pony. Stone Pony, right, yeah. We actually stopped by there, and I think it was being renovated, renovated at the time. And um, so, yeah, excited to have you and excited to talk about moving through America, but wanted to go back and learn a little bit more about you. And we're actually in Memphis, Tennessee, and I saw that you grew up in Meridian, Mississippi, not too far down the road. Right. Yeah, and I've, I've been going to Memphis since the early 70s. I'm quite fond of it. So what was it like growing up in Meridian? Well, uh, you know, just going to school and being in a town of about 40 to 50,000 people. And um, to me, it was mostly about finding uh, the the outlet in, in pop music and starting to play guitar and just Getting, getting more and more interested in that. And um, it just gave me an alternative to the fraternity guy football scene, you know. And that was a welcome, you know, outlet. Was there a musical tradition in Meridian? Uh, that I know that, uh, I know that um, Jimmy Rogers was from there, but was there sort of a, a basic musical tradition that you tapped into in Meridian? I wouldn't say there was a basic music tradition. Um, Jimmy Rogers died in 1933. And I knew some of his nephews. They were my age. Um, And a person that taught me guitar and helped us put together some bands and some local shows uh, always said that she was a cousin of Jimmy Rogers, and that's entirely possible. I always assumed it was true. And then you just you just skip the decades, and there were you know VFW halls and Knights of Columbus and whatever bands would play those places. True of any town. Um, but uh, we did have Paul Davis, who played in a rock and roll band called the Endless Chain and Meridian. There were about four rock and roll bands older than me. 
And Paul Davis was in the best of them, which was The Endless Chain. And he started making records over at Malico in Jackson. And from there, he hooked up with Burt Burns at Bang Records in New York City. So Paul, Paul actually had a hit on the radio with 65 Love Affair, and he had a huge hit with I Go Crazy. And I, I had collected some of the records he made for Malico, and I'm quite fond of them. I love them. But then he became more of a uh, early 70s pop artist. We're not talking about like the Osmonds or something, but he wrote and produced his own records in Atlanta. So that was an important part of it all to me. I really looked up to Paul Davis. He died at the age of 60 about 12 years ago, maybe 15, time flies. Was it important to have someone ahead of you that was actually doing that musical career that you knew of and could see that path? Well, I didn't know much about the path. Um, it, it was just it, the, the way you would look up to somebody that you had access to was was important. And um, my friend Clay Barnes, who was a really good guitar player, and, and he, he played lead guitar in all the groups I was in. We, we, we would visit Paul and and um, he, it was just it was kind of like it could be done. Paul, Paul owned a Jaguar. He had a, jag, a red Jaguar that he'd gotten from Burt Burns or maybe Burt's wife, Eileen. Because when Burt Burns died, Eileen kind of tried to take over the Bang Records, you know, operation. And I think she gave Paul a Jaguar. Things were looking really good. But um, he had a little trouble getting the show on the road and going out to promote these records. He had a couple of others. And he wrote one song called Ride 'em Cowboy that should be famous. Uh, it's almost it, it, like an Americana song, but it, it's it's sad. It's very touching. It's not just a 65 love affair thing. Uh, it, it, it's about an aging cowboy. It's, it's quite good. Now ride, I'm going to have to look that song up. <laughs> yeah, Ride 'em ride Cowboy. It's a sad song, but it's beautiful. Yeah. So when did you start playing guitar? How young were you? I think uh, 11 or so. And were you in bands in, in high school then? Or uh, were you just playing acoustically? What were you doing with guitar? Uh, well, I first got an acoustic guitar and learned how to play things like 500 miles and maybe uh, as tears go by. and But pretty soon, um, th this gal I was talking to you about uh, Virginia Shine Harvey, she would encourage us boys to maybe put together a band. And, you know, Bill Thornton plays drums. What if you see if you could play and start a group with him and Clay Barnes or something? So then you need an electric guitar. We weren't going to sit around with a drum kit and play these old Kingston acoustic guitars we got for $49. So so it became a rock, rock and roll garage type stuff. And we had a ball. We did that for, you know, between the ages of 14 and 21 when I left town. Well, you know, it's funny. I was, I was doing some research and I came across a quote from a teacher you had, this, this guy, Roger Hines, in seventh grade. And he actually said that um, 
he saw you play in Decatur, Georgia, near Atlanta, and you came after the concert and said hi to him, and you, you started quoting a poem that he had had the class memorize, and that he said you knew every word of it, and it was such a treat for the teacher. And I, I was just sort of wondering if your love of words started at an early age in lyrics. Well, it must have. It must have. I always had a knack for uh, remembering lyrics to songs on the radio. And 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 uh, honestly, it just meant the world to me. Um, when Paul Simon started covering the nation with hits like Sounds of Silence and I Am a Rock and you know, hazy shade of winter. And it was such quality stuff. And yeah, it's always been as much about the words as it is the music to me, totally. And that takes you quickly into the birds and that takes you quickly into Bob Dylan. And there was just a wealth of stuff. And these people just kept coming for a while there. Um, Joni Mitchell, of course, and Judy Collins wrote some things of her own, and they were very dark. People haven't said much about Judy Collins' original songs, but they're unusually uh, they're kind of spooky. They're pretty dark. Um, they always kind of remind me of the ghost in Mrs. Muir. Um, anyway, there were just so many people. Um, and it got kind of poppy, like Mark Bolin and T-Rex, and it, was, it just never ended. It, it just never ended. I mean, even Cream, known as a power virtuoso rock trio, had songs that had perfectly good lyrics because the bar was high. So there you go. You'd have a song like I Feel Free, which has been covered by Belinda Carlisle, I think. And, you know, it's, it's a great, uh, what you call a copyright. Good songs and inspiring lyrics that, that, that were basically friendly. You know, it, it wasn't until Black Sabbath came out, really, that anybody was really had any currency going with particularly dark things that weren't, you know. Uh, it, it, and then, of course, later, the Sex Pistols made a point of it. But... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving so many people out. Jackson Brown, Graham Parsons, and the list just went on and on, and I kept going deeper and deeper. It was a guy named David Ackles who was pretty good, but he was kind of Broadway-like, but he, he had some good songs. and It just went on forever. I think you're making a very good point, which is whenever that time period is, it could have been an art back in the you know 1400s or 1500s. It can be and rock in the 70s or 60s. But um, when you have so many people that are setting the bar so high, it really does uh, create an environment that rise, kind of rises everyone up uh, to a different level, I think. And, and that period of time, um, people were feeding off of each other even. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, let's not forget Van Morrison, a record like Astral Weeks. When you discovered that, it's so, so overtly poetic. And there you go. That takes the bar up again. Yeah. So before we leave Meridian, because I know you went to New York after that, um, Jimmy Rogers, were you, were you aware of him growing up or did you not really discover him until you were older? Um, I was aware of him. 
Amy, the town kind of made a big deal out of him as a sort of an effort to promote itself, Meridian, okay. Mississippi. And they, for, for many years, they had a Jimmy Rogers parade and there was a Jimmy Rogers museum and uh, some statues dedicated to his memory. So they tried to make a thing of it. And well, they should have. I think Jimmy Rogers was a genius and a really solid talent that can really take you down to the elemental uh, well, he was dying of tuberculosis the whole time he was famous, and it killed him. So there's a very elemental element to when Jimmy Rogers is singing about life. He's not just, uh, you know, he's not kidding around. Right. He's dealing with some real mortality angles. And it gets it. I think it's real, real. So to answer your question, I was aware of him. But it didn't mean much to me. I mean, I was more interested in Jefferson Airplane and, and uh, you know, Rolling Stones and The Who or whatever. Uh, but uh, as I got older uh, and you start to hear uh, people like Merle Haggard do a tribute record to Jimmy Rogers, which was in the late 60s, he did that. And, and you, you just start to put the pieces together, the puzzle, as you discover uh as you discover Hank Williams Sr. and you discover people like, uh, uh, if you're listening to Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, and all, it all starts to go back to Jimmy Rogers. You know, uh, Lefty Frizzell loved Jimmy Rogers, and you just you start to go, wow, you know, uh, these people all keep talking about Jimmy Rogers. And so, so then you have to put the puzzle together for yourself and, and, and listen to him. And then as I got more into this Americana thing and playing solo with, with a guitar and all, uh, I, I got way into it. And I, I had an advantage to, to understanding the Jimmy Rogers thing because I was kind of doing that. And, um, it just, it's fascinating. They've never made a movie of his life and they should have done one um, because it's so dramatic and color, colorful. It's fascinating. Hollywood should take note. <laughs> yeah, I think it's too late though, Amy. I really, yeah. I'm afraid it's too late, but they did one of, uh, I think Keith Carradine played Woody Goth Guthrie once. Mm -hmm. uh, and they did that kind of thing, but uh, they, they, didn't do Jimmy Rogers. Well, I know you put out an album, Any Old Time, and it was nominated for a Grammy. And uh, why did you choose to do it when you did it, that particular tribute? I, I don't know. I'd been producing, Gary Talent had been producing some records for me, and he had a studio in Nashville. He moved from the Jersey Shore to Nashville. And I was signed to Koch Records and they wanted a, a, another album. And it just, I, I knew that sooner or later I would have to acknowledge this Jimmy Rogers, father of country music, America's blue yodeler, the singing brakeman. You're from his hometown. You know, well, <laughs> what, what have you got to say about that? You know? So I thought I need to do a tribute record to him and let's, uh, let's try to have some fun with it and, we naturally had to update some of the rhythms because life had changed so much that this was like 2003 and the rhythms of life and, 
the, the, the culture around you is so much different than they were in 1927, 8, 9, 30, 33. You know, old-timey music. Well, we didn't want to make an old-timey record. I just wanted to kind of do it in the way I felt the songs. Um, and we just, we just, it wasn't hard to pick 12 or so fun, relevant songs. Okay, so let's, let's go back to when you were pretty young and you decided to leave Meridian and go to New York City. What made you decide to just pick up and go? I mean, you're young, so that sounds exciting, but was it for music or was it just to go do something, have an adventure? Oh, no, it was totally for music. I've been writing a lot of songs and there was only so far you could go with original material in Mississippi. We, we'd explored a few uh, avenues, but I couldn't really get anybody in a rock and roll band to want to just completely walk out on thin ice with me, you know, and go to New York City. So it became more and more apparent that I'm going to have to get a solo thing happening. And it was then just to find somewhere to go to play original material and acoustic at, at, at that. And, and that was whatever was going to be left of the Greenwich Village scene. So that's why I went. Where did you first get gigs in New York City? The street. <laughs> <laughs> Singing on the sidewalk. I realized that you didn't just walk into these clubs and say, hey, I'm, I've come a long way to sing in Greenwich Village bars. Uh, my name's Steve Forbert. And they're like, well, take take a number, you know, literally, because you would do the hoot nights and you'd take a card and it would have a number on it. And then you would just wait in in the queue there. What's a hoot night? Hoot night is what you now would say is an open mic night. OK. It was Tuesday nights at Folk City every week. And uh, then I had to just do those doggedly for, for a year or so before I could even become an opening act one weekend and then just work up from there. So I had to and in the meantime, if you want to be practicing and, and, and chipping away at it and improving, you need to be singing in, on the sidewalks. So you're writing music, you're playing at uh, uh, venues like Folk City, I guess Kenny's Castaways is another right. place that you played. And did you find a, a kind of a folk community in those places? Or were you co collaborating with other musicians or what was the scene like? Well, there was something left. It wasn't the heyday of the 60s. But there was Kenny's Castaways in the bitter end. And there were a couple of other places. And there was Folk City. And there were kids trying to do it. Uh, so I met all these people my age who were rolling the dice and trying to get started playing their guitars and singing songs they'd written. So I liked that a lot. And, uh, you know, that, that was extremely fun. So uh, that, that was still there. You didn't have names like Dave Van Ronk and, and Tim Harden and Joni Mitchell popping out of there, but you had the Roaches started. They had, been a duo and they became a trio and that that coincided with Kenny's Castaways reopening and that there were some people uh, around that I, I could look to who were chipping away at it and one of them Tom Pacheco had a couple of albums out on RCA 
So the, 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 it was all happening. P people of repute were playing the bitter end. It was called the other end at that time, but yeah. So when were you discovered or when did you make your first album and how did that actually happen for you? Well, I'll try to say it in six sentences. <laughs> I was crazy enough to, after uh, ex exploiting or, or going through all the options in what we just talked about, and I've already passed six sentences. Anyway, I thought one day I'll try to go over and play CBGBs, you know, and I, I also tried Max's Kansas City. I mean, anywhere that you, you might could play, I gave it a shot. And I was uh, accepted over at CBGB's and they let me open some shows and do some things. And, and then Danny Fields, uh, music impresario and a, 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 affiliated with Electra Records. A, a lot of people have heard of Danny Fields. Hilly invited, Hilly Crystal, who ran CBGB, said, come over and hear this kid Tuesday night. And so Danny did. And uh, that's where it went from there. Uh, and, I, and, and the New York Times sent uh, John Rockwell down to Kenny's to review a show. I don't know why, but it was very favorable. And all that just converged at the same time. Danny Fields became my manager. And this New York Times article made anybody in the music industry in New York want to know, well, who, who is this kid? And so the, from there, it, it came together pretty easily. But that was a year and a half of sidewalks and auditions and you know, subway train rides out to the stretches of Queens and New Jersey playing clubs and stuff. So it must have felt pretty good to get that break then. Um, it, it, it did feel uh, good, of course, but it's just it, it's what I was hell bent on doing. It's it, it had been a year and a half and that felt like long enough. And I, I wasn't thinking of quitting and going back to Mississippi and maybe trying and going to college or something. But it seemed about right that, that it when it finally came together. And then you put out an album in Romeo's Tomb, which, of course, is a really big hit. Um, that was on your second album, the Jack Rabbit Slim. And, yeah. uh, and so when that came out, um, you probably heard the song on the radio and it, it's playing nationally. And what was that experience like for you? Well, I'd been touring nationally to promote the first record and being on a, a label uh, that was affiliated with Epic Records, which was affiliated with CBS. I'd already been on the road a lot and I'd done shows in Holland and Germany and England. And so the single just, just gave it a whole lot more juice and I was sort of, you know, then getting some notoriety. But I had been touring, uh, thanks to Epic Records, for already for a year with a, with a band I had put together. So the single didn't just suddenly take me out on the road. We just kept going. We had shows booked, but they were much better attended. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they were. Yeah. And, um so Bobby Ogden played the piano on Romeo's tune, and he actually had also played with Elvis previously. How did you actually meet? I mean, I guess you, you said you'd been through Memphis many times. Is that how you met him? 
Well, here's where I plug the book. In 2018, I put out Big City Cat, which was a memoir. It's about 260 pages. And all of that is in the book. But basically, John Simon was producing Jack Rabbit Slim for me, and we were we were going to Nashville, and John tells a story in my book. I, I let other people tell some stories in the book for different points of view, even though it was my memoir, and it worked. And John was uh, – it's in the book. He's saying that when they, we got there, the the regular A-team music row musicians were booked for my album for like two weeks. But I didn't like them because they were just kind of – they were what you were hearing everywhere. They were so uh, seasoned, and they'd done a million sessions, and it it just it just didn't have as much vitality as I was feeling in my bones, you know, at age twenty five or four. And it's in the book. We were going to have to figure out what on earth to do because how do you tell the best musicians in Nashville that they're not making it? <laughs> <laughs> But they it's not quite what you want. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, um, they themselves had gotten the vibe from me that I wanted something a little more uh, 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 less proven, a, a little more un, uh, raw, a little little more raw. Now, we are by no means talking about like the dead Kennedys here or something, you know, but a little bit. And they they bowed out. They said, we 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 don't think we're right for this kid, but we know the next wave that's coming up. Of course we do. And we can recommend some guys we think are are, are just right for exactly this. And it all worked out. And Bobby, Bobby Ogden was among those people they recommended. Oh, okay. I I don't know who would have been uh, more established than Bobby because his his track record's incredible. But anyway, there he he he. If he wasn't in the original lineup, he was in the next lineup. But uh, yeah, and we became friends, and I still am in touch with him till t- as even today. So you put out over twenty albums, and uh, you continue to because we're going to talk about your new album here in just a, just a bit. But do you ever feel pressure to put out an album or is it always just when when that hits you or you're constantly writing? Yeah, I try to be constantly writing. Um, And I've never been really pressured to put out a record. Maybe the third record I might have been because Jackrabbit Slim was a success. So it would be like, we want some some more. Give, Give us another record. But it's never been a real problem, you know. And um, I've also had one luxury, a, a lot of a lot of really well-known singer songwriters and rock and roll artists have have maneuvered themselves into record contracts where they were getting such good advances. You know, that they there's that pressure when you're going to get a million advance for an album or later, maybe two million an album. So that might start to take over your mind. It's like, I got to get that $2 million. I'm making a record. What, what, what can I scrounge together? You know, that's not good. I've never had that problem. Um, But it's, it's really a bad thing. You know, when you're just, you start to be saying, I got to get something out there because there's such a nice advance waiting for me because I'm so 
famous. And that that's good. That that's certainly likely to hurt the content of said album. Yeah, you hear about the notorious sophomore albums for a lot of artists because they're on those contracts that you're describing. And they put out a great first album because it was a compilation of a lot of years of putting, you know, time and effort into those songs. And then all of a sudden they've got a year to write a whole nother album. And that's tough, um, especially as an, as an individual. So it's great that you didn't have that kind of pressure on you throughout. Well, and I, I, I was had also been writing songs for years and then, you know, there were songs that I kept off of Alive on Arrival, but to 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 hold them for Jackrabbit Slim and Romeo's tune was one of those. Uh, it was thought I felt it was a single and it was a love song. And Alive on Arrival was more of a kid comes to the city and he's, this is a tale of scuffling and singing in the streets kind of deal and self-discovery. So. I left some things off of that record, to, and they became more on the pop record, a, a little bit poppier of of uh, Jack Rabbit Slim. But it's there are no rules, Amy. Uh, you, you, it's surprising to learn that the Ramones had written their first three albums be- before they ever made a record. So, so there you go. You know the Ramones and Leave Home, and I think it's Rocket to Russia. But those the, the first three records were written when they were still. They were wearing jeans that were worn out, but it wasn't just a look, you know. It wasn't a punk rock fashion statement. So they had a, you know, real storage of material. So um, you also write music for other people. And, you know, you've written music for Marty Stewart and Roseanne Cash and others. And... Are you writing a song specifically for them, or did you just write a song and you, then you thought later, hey, that would be great for Marty Stewart? Um, I've never, I don't think I've ever written a song specifically for someone else. These things just sort of happen serendipitously. Uh, Marty Stewart got a recording contract after years of playing on the road and for, with Columbia. And uh, he, he asked me if I had a, somebody asked me if I had a couple of songs for him. And, and of course I did. It was, I can relate to Marty's style of music, but I, I didn't say I could come up with something, give me a week. You know, I, I just sent them a couple of things and they liked them. And that's the sort of thing. You, you can push these things really hard, but they rarely happen because you thought of it. it's always a surprise well and keith urban actually did a recording of romeo's tune yeah i think in 2007 and what was it like to see such a big hit sung by another big star was his did you like the version and was it something different i mean what, what how did you feel about that well i felt good about it it was basically basically the same as mine. It wasn't a lot different, but he had that banjo thing he did. Maybe he still does. So he added that to it. And uh, sure, I was happy about it because covers are great. If you, if somebody covers a song, it's sort of like saying the song has legs, like it has a life of its own beyond, beyond Jackson Brown singing Dr. My Eyes, you know, uh, whatever. 
so the covers are kind of like a, a, a decent indication that a song may, you know, last a while and stand on its own. You know, I mean, Girls Want to Have Fun is always going to be a hit. Girls Just Want to Have Fun. But uh, it doesn't need anybody to cover it because it's such a big song. But Romeo's tune, that's nice. It helps it out. It helps the song. Well, since you mentioned Girls Just Want to Have Fun, you were actually a cameo in that video, I think. Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> One of my favorite songs. It's just that Cindy Lauper was in a group called Blue Angel, and they played um, New Jersey a lot. And I happened upon them in that way. And I had seen them play, and I thought the girl singer was pretty remarkable. And then she, just through the course of things, she went solo. And when she got ready to make a video for the first single, she knew I'd come to some of the shows and I had some notoriety. And she asked me if I'd be in the video. And I said, sure. So it was just that simple. So would you consider yourself uh, a performer first, a songwriter first, or is it just one big package because you like both so much? I think songwriter mostly. Um, you'll notice that most of the people that write their own material are able to sing. Bernie Taupin probably wouldn't have gone deeply into a career of writing lyrics, except that he had this mouthpiece, if you will, which was Elton John, this incredible talent. So it. It's, it's just kind of thing I've been thinking about for the last year or so. If if you lose your voice you and you're a singer-songwriter, you probably won't write but about three more songs, and then you'll just say, forget it. It's having the means to deliver it if you're a singer. I mean, if I thought here for a second, there I could give you a couple of exceptions, you know, but it usually goes hand in hand with you can sing the song and and you have enough of a voice to get up in front of people and sing it. So you can put it over. Uh, you can deliver it. And, and it just goes on from there. But it, it's, it's, having, it's having a voice to deliver a song with that encourage you, encourages you to write a song and then write some more. And writes, there's somewhere you can go with it, you know? So it's a form of self-expression. Yeah, without any impediments in the way. I mean, uh, we don't know what Stephen Foster, the hell, what he really sounded like if he was singing his way down up Swanee River or whatever, you know, or I Dream of Jeannie with light brown hair. We don't know, you know, no recordings. But we know what Jimmy Rogers sounded like big time. And he could put it over. So it's, it's very, you know, see, there's a lot of encouragement to write songs because uh, you need something to sing. So what do you think about the modern Americana music movement? Because you had this, the folk movement in the 60s and 70s, and then you had sort of more of a pop and grunge, and then, then Americana came about more recently. Is it really more like the traditional and folk that was sort of repackaged? Or what do you think about Americana? 
Well, I love it. I'm 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 very happy that it exists because um, uh, I always liked country music, but it it began to get more formulaic and uh, uh, more corporate in the 80s and 90s. And I always wonder, well, where's that thing between rock and roll and country that's that that, that would be like what Graham Parsons had forged, you know, and and the band's first two records. And it and Americana became that. It, it's got a sensibility and a personable quality to it that that radio country doesn't really have, hasn't had for some time now. Um, I loved I've Got Friends in Low Places by Garth Brooks. It's a great record. Uh, but he also is a marketing Svengali or whatever. And he kind of took it somewhere else. And the, the, the energy followed that. So then you have Americana. It's not going to be a big moneymaker for almost everybody in it. There will be exceptions. We all know Jason Isbell is doing really, really well. And Lucinda Williams is, is becoming more and more of a presence and, great but for most people doing it it's because they just like that kind of thing they don't have to have a limousine and they don't have to have two drummers you know and and fireworks on stage they don't like that and 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 uh, i can dig it you know i've always felt that way myself do you think that by defining it it's opened up a path for some younger artists that felt like that's who they are, that they now have a path to follow? Sure. Sure. And it, 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 I just hope they understand that it is not popular music today. And I don't think it's ever going to be. The world is moving along, you know, tumbling along with this, responding to all the technology that's available and the way that records sound now, you know, it's completely different beast, but, but, but the people we're talking about have a love for this and they want to pick up an acoustic guitar and get with a pedal steel player and make that sound. So that's great. And there'll be a core audience that'll come to it. And, and uh, it's very give and take, you know, well, I'm somewhat encouraged by the resurgence of vinyl records. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. It's nice, but I, I don't think any of us are going to slow down the, um, you know, that at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about people that would take the bar even higher mm -hmm. and lyrically, we were saying, you know, that's not, that's not coming back, I don't think. Well, let's talk about your new album, Moving Through America. And it's out May 13th on Blue Rose Records. And where did you record the album? Uh, I'm here in the studio right now. It's Steve Greenwell's studio in Asbury Park. And were there other players on the album that, uh, who else was on the album with you? Well, it's mostly the same guys that did a cover record uh, that Steve Greenwell and I uh, did together in 2020, I think, we was when we did it. And it, that was called Early Morning Rain, some of my favorite singer-songwriter songs for, going back for my whole life of things I liked by other people. 
So who's on it? Uh, Aaron Comis, who used to be in the Spin Doctors, is on drums. He's, he was on both albums. And Rob Cloris, uh, a piano player from up near Jersey City, is on both albums. And uh, a local Asbury Park guy, Mark Muller, who plays guitar and pedal steel on both albums. And the guy that's in my touring band, uh, George Naha, was on both, both bands on Fender Telecaster. So that's the main core of people. Uh, John Conti played bass on the cover record, and Richard Hammond played most of the bass on uh, Moving Through America. And Gary Talent helped us out on one song. He played, Gary played bass on um, Living the Dream. Were most of these songs written recently? Yeah. Yeah, the oldest one is the title song, I think. Um, Moving Through America, which I did as a vocal guitar song on The Magic Tree, which came out in 2018. And so I wanted to do a full band arrangement, and that's what we now have on Moving Through America. And it became the title song. And what about Say Hello to Gainesville? That was a tribute to Tom Petty. Did you know Tom Petty? No, I, I've worked with Ben Mott Tinch, played on a record of ours in 1995 called Mission of the Cross, Crossroad Palms. Uh, and I knew Howie Epstein and did some work with him. Uh, but, but the thing about that song, I just started writing this song, which kind of demented. It was a little takeoff on um, Anita Bryant's commercials for orange juice in the 60s or 70s. Orange juice with natural vitamin C growing on the sunshine tree. Okay, you know, it's not exactly raindrops keep falling on my head, or maybe it is, but it was off the wall, but <clears throat> I was that was my inspiration. And by the time I got to the second verse, I realized that I was referencing Florida, Central Florida, Gainesville. And in my world, that was kind of leading toward what was then a, a, a fresh wound of Tom Petty just suddenly dying. And I just said, wow, this is, wait a second, this is like a tribute to Tom Petty. But there's, yeah, let's do that. And so this orange juice <laughs> uh, becomes something more coherent and 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 i think uh you know uh, what should i say needed as a song something about tom and and then it it kind of moves on into a thing kind of about like um times have changed and any photo you see of tom now is is of necessity in the past he's passed away and it's just kind of references those guitars and all when that was a prevalent, prevalent sound of current cutting edge, whatever radio pop music. So that's the funny thing about that song. And you have to you have to go with those things sometime, even though you don't know what you're writing about. You know, well, you, know you just reminded me, Steve, of a picture I have of myself in the 70s, the Florida Citrus Queen came to visit my uh, elementary school. All and right. I this, oh, I know. And I have this picture of myself with uh, pigtails and a beauty queen behind me with the big hair, big blonde hair and a Florida citrus queen. And, uh, you know, uh, 
she was uh, she was looking pretty good, and we were looking pretty pretty kid like. So, <laughs> <laughs> what town was that? That was in Memphis. That was oh in yeah, Memphis. of course. Okay, so yeah. you've been there. You grew up in Memphis. Yeah. Okay. Do you know Robbie Turner? I don't. I don't. <laughs> He's from there. He's a uh, mainly a pedal steel guitarist in Nashville, and played with the Highwaymen. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, sure, I know some people from Memphis. Uh, Jack Holder, did you know Jack, the guitarist? I don't think I knew Jack. Yeah, he's passed away. Uh, mm. He was fan-freaking-tastic. He played lead guitar on a record I did called uh, Evergreen Boy, which uh, we recorded at Ardent in 1999 in Memphis. Right on. So, yeah. yeah. Arden's amazing, and there's just so many great studios and musicians in Memphis. It's great to just be here in, and uh, with Diddy TV, you know, because Diddy TV is sort of more on the roots and Americana side of things, but right in this area is just that, that big melting pot of music, and it's kind of everything that kind of blends together. And yeah. uh, a lot of forces that cause that. Um, I just want to say, uh, Buffalo Nickel, we'll talk this, talk about Buffalo Nickel, the last song, and then everyone just needs to go get the album and listen to the whole thing for themselves. But um, Buffalo Nickel was, was a very interesting take on, um, take on the plight of, of Indians. And I thought I would ask you a little bit about that, Native Americans. Well, it's... Um... I, I, I find that I'm, I'm just wrestling with irony uh, almost certainly daily. There's just so much irony um, in America, in American life. I guess there always has been. But as consciousness grows as, and as people become more uh, understanding and, and aware of other people and uh, other groups in the country, um you know, you, you, there's a song on the new record called It's Too Bad You're Super Freak. And it's just some of these songs of mine just start with things that are just simply paradoxes and contradictions. I'm standing outside of the hospital stomping out a cigarette. You know, I got to quit again. I know, but when I just can't put my foot down yet, you know, you're, there you are. You're outside of the hospital to lighten up another one, you know cigarette and and the buffalo nickel is just so it, it you couldn't make up a more paradoxical little item on one side is the indian brave profile and on the other is the poor old buffalo and you know uh both of those things didn't do too well with the uh, arrival and and westward movement of the white man so it's just a crazy little thing to hold in your hands. Like, wow, is this for real? Is this, is this serious? <laughs> this was really the coin from, say, 19, what, 04 to 38? You know, it's, 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 it's ludicrous. Well, hopefully we're progressing and, and changing. For so many years, nothing changed. And I think we're starting to see some some social change and things going on and the way people's attitudes are towards lots of different causes and, and, and social, uh, social causes. Well, moving through America, it's, it's a, it's a great album. I listened to the, to the whole thing. I had the privilege of getting an early copy of it. And when it comes out, everyone needs to run out and get a copy for themselves. 
Um, so I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you, Steve, and uh, such, a, such a pleasure and an honor. Hopefully you'll get down to Memphis at some point. Come see us. Oh, yeah, I'd love to play the, uh, the band shell again. I played there in 2012 with a trio. And honestly, we were a little bit under rehearse and it was extremely warm summer night. But the crowd came out like it was the Beatles. I mean, we had they were just giddy out there. I'm not, I'm not sure what they were serving up there at the concession stand, but we had a ball. I'd, I'd love to get back to the Overton Shell. Well, I know those folks. I'm going to tell them you had a blast last time you were here. Yeah. <laughs> there was dancing and, they, you know, we made a few mistakes and they, they seemed to like that more. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, now that's Memphis for you. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, it's such a pleasure and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Years before Americana Music earned its own category at the Grammy Awards, Steve Forbert helped pioneer the genre's mix of folk, roots rock, and richly delivered storytelling. He's been a torchbearer of that sound for more than four decades since, navigating the twists and turns of an acclaimed career that's taken him from gold records to Grammy nominations, from New York City's CBGB to Nashville's Bluebird Cafe, from his 1978 debut album, to 2022's Vital and Versatile, Moving Through America, which is set to release on May 13th. Get your pre-orders in now at steveforbert.com. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again soon, right here on Insights.